Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. Hello, listeners. Today on the show, I interview Nick Martin. Nick is a principal engineer at Indigo Agriculture, and prior to that, was an engineer and manager at Tapjoy, where he helped build an ad tech monetization and user acquisition platform capable of handling billions of requests per day. I worked at Indigo with Nick, and I'm fortunate to have him as a mentor. I'm excited to share this interview with you and hope you'll enjoy our wide-ranging conversation. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Today on the show, I'm very excited to have Nick Martin. Uh, Nick and I worked together at Indigo Agriculture for a couple months, was an incredible mentor of mine, um, learned a ton from him. So he's on the show today to talk about engineering, management, potentially stocks, companies in the post-COVID era, and a ton more. Uh, But Nick, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm super happy to be here. Awesome. Me too. So I want to start off actually with kind of a funny topic, which is your LinkedIn profile. Um, So for skills in your LinkedIn, you have karma, murder, swift business, software architectural design, and unfucking things. It's actually the final one I'm interested in because, um, pardon my French to the listeners, but I think unfucking things is like the critical management skill. Um, And also like, you know, this is a stocks podcast. So a lot of value investing, in my opinion, is finding companies who have had some bad things happen to them where the narrative is, is kind of not in their favor and then flipping that narrative, um, which obviously applies to management as well. So wanted to hear about how you got skilled in unfucking things and also what that means. Sure. Uh, so a little history. Uh, my friends and I tend to have um, a tendency to try to name a concept. Um, especially if it doesn't have a good name before. So Swift Business is also one of those. Uh, Some business that is done unbelievably swiftly at like no rate that's required. Unfucking things by definition is taking a situation which is fucked and making it not fucked anymore. Um, What what does it mean by process though? Really, uh, the first step is realizing that a situation is fucked. Um, This can be at any level, mind you, like big or small, like, uh, a team could be doing something really wrong. Uh, there might be some engineering practice that's really bad. Uh, folks are focusing on the wrong things. If you have all of this going on at a company at a grand enough level, the company is fucked, right? So uh, you need to first realize that's what's going on. Uh, the, the second part actually just becomes problem solving. Like, what are the what are the immediate things we can tackle now to start getting some small wins for folks and start turning morale around. Typically speaking, in a fuck situation, people are not particularly happy, right? Um, Folks might even be defeatist, which is going to be counterproductive. Uh, As you you start improving these processes, soon, like, the situation is just good at some point. And and you can kind of do this... um, for, for almost any set of problems, really, if you look around hard enough for it. The the small wins piece is really interesting because I've definitely seen you implement that and use small wins to get some momentum on teams. Can you use some examples of small wins and also why you think they're effective for unfucking things? 
Sure. Uh, a lot of times uh, what you'll end up having is uh, a team that has to do a very large project that's like turned into a slug. Um, so so that, that's like a common situation where things are fucked. Um, everything from a six month project turns into two years to um, this thing was really harder than everyone thought and it's just going to take longer. Uh, at some point, the teams will start basically getting strung out. They've been working on the same stuff. It feels like it'll never end. How do we start getting some momentum? Our productivity also often goes down during this, right? I think it's actually worth uh, finding things that are different from what folks have been working on to inject in that they can like easily crush. Uh, if stories that have been coming into to their work streams are all large, you know, they always feel like a huge slog. You can chop them up usually. It's the exact same amount of work, except it feels like they won more because they finished more things even though the, the actual work stream um, hasn't changed at all, right? And, and these kinds of things add up for, for positivity for the team um, to kind of start cruising through. Uh, and, and literally nothing changed here, right? It's entirely perception-based. Um, there, there are other variations of that. Uh, if teams are doing a lot of stuff that they don't need to be doing on those long projects, uh, don't do them, right? If, if folks are like extra hardening something for performance, but it's only going to get a hundred transactions per day. Well, you don't need to do that. Like do that hardening down the line. If you do actually get more um, data coming into your systems. Yeah. The selection process is pretty interesting to me because as you mentioned, there are any number of dials you could turn in terms of which things to unfuck and, and how to pick them. Um, we've talked a bit about ROI um, not from a financial sense, but return on investment in terms of projects you could take or small wins you could get to unfuck things. So talk a little bit about ROI and how it is involved in this process of unfucking things. Yeah, I think it's to the heart of it, actually, uh, to a certain degree. Um, I'm going to make a statement, and this, this may or may not be true for everyone, but uh, folks feel like they're winning if their company that they're working for is doing well. And companies are doing well when they have high ROI and are making money. Uh, even if they're not making money yet, if they're trending in that direction, they're by definition doing well. Um, like over time, they'll get there is the idea. So uh, you, you want to make sure that you're doing high ROI things to get there because people will feel like they're winning, which makes it actually easier to do everything else because the morale is just there. You won't have as much defeatism. Um, so, so like what is high ROI activities, uh, high ROI activities in my definition are anything you do, which results in the exchange of goods and services for United States dollars, uh, either directly or indirectly. A direct example is a sales sales call and someone agrees to buy something. Uh, an indirect example is, uh, someone writes some software that allows a salesperson to make a deal. And an even more indirect example is someone sets up servers that allows that software product to run that lets a salesperson make a call that results in a deal. Like all of those are high ROI. Um, low ROI, honestly, by now, it's not too dissimilar. Um, however, uh, very dangerous. Uh, the, the, the lowest ROI thing I think you can actually do in a company uh, is build the wrong software. So the, re the reason is quite simple. Um, if you build something that no one wants and you don't want to just delete it like immediately afterwards, uh, you have done 
you've spun up engineering teams, which are hugely expensive to go build a thing. Now they need to support that thing. And even if it doesn't get active support, it still lives in the code, right? People still need to go constantly look at it and think about it and do context switching on it. So now you're taxing all of your future software development with this thing that doesn't make you any money. And, and in the face of it, someone might say, oh, well, it doesn't make us any money, but it doesn't cost us any money either. And that's, that's fundamentally untrue. In fact, that entire effort has large negative value. Uh, it continues to tax all future development. So it's extremely important to um, spend time upfront trying to figure out if this is even uh, an ROI generating project to work on. Like, like that's high ROI, in fact. And, and you know, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you do need to take a gamble um, and build something that you have a hypothesis you think will work. Uh, and maybe the only guaranteed ROI you get out of it is you can you know, validate or invalidate your hypothesis. Um, but if it turns out that uh, you, know, you were wrong, this is a bad idea, make sure to kill it. Yeah, I think this process of evaluation and measurement of potential ROI projects is really difficult. Um, you definitely see a lot of different managers and engineers and even shareholders trying to do it. I mean, I think kind of the cause of these shareholder activism battles, which you're seeing more and more in corporate America, is investors saying, you're working on all the wrong projects. We need to get rid of management because they don't understand what's high ROI and what's low ORI. Uh, at a company level, I, I feel like we've seen this debate play out a ton. Like you'll be an engineer and say, why the hell are we working on this thing? Um, we should be working on this thing. And then engineering leadership will say, what about this thing? Product has another perspective and maybe the C-level suite has another perspective. Uh, what do you think is the key to unifying those perspectives and getting people to respect the process for evaluating ROI projects and then agreeing on which ones to go forward with? Oh, man. I think this is actually a, a challenge uh, of humanity in general. Uh, I could talk about symbolism and memes, but I'll skip that for a bit. Um, so uh, the reason why you hear people saying different things effectively boils down in my eyes to they don't have the same understanding of what would be a revenue generating activity for the business. Fun fundamentally, they, they don't. Um, even if they know what the, the nouns in question are, like what the events that would do that, they might have very different views on how to get there. Um, so because of that, uh, you'll have people pushing in wildly different directions, right? Um, and if those directions are wild enough, you're actually splitting your business, right? You're not, you're not going to efficiently get any of those goals. Um, so the ship doesn't really move. And in the worst case, all it does is spin around in a circle. Um, how do you get shared understanding? Uh, I think that's like an open philosophical topic right now, frankly. Uh, I've been talking with friends about this very thing uh, a lot recently on a smaller scale than a business. Um, and it's really hard. Uh, I think part of the reason memes and slogans uh, are so proliferant in our society is because they're so easy to share with other people. And you look at it and you instantly get the concept. It's entirely there. Do that with an engineering document, right? Like, ain't no one gonna understand it. Uh, even if you know the back end really well, you probably still wanna get on a call and talk it through. And then even so, not everyone's gonna understand what you just showed them. Same thing with the business plan, right? Like. Everyone needs to know all the context of like why certain parts of the plan are good and why they aren't. 
where did the source of these numbers come from? Did they source the good database or the bad database? Like, I don't know. Like, you need to know all these things to know um, what any of it means. And, and like, there's no good way of sharing that. Like, if someone can solve that, that's a million dollar business problem right there. Yeah, I've definitely struggled with the trickiness of this problem because I think a lot of it comes down to communication. Like the way you would sell an engineer on ROI is totally different from how you might sell someone from product or sales or even engineering leadership. I mean, a lot of this boils down to, I think, information asymmetry. People closer to the problem are going to have way more information than people who are abstracted to a level where what they do is talk to shareholders and try to determine strategic direction. Is there anything you found particularly useful with this communication challenge? Uh, whether it's like thinking about how different groups intake information and then what to present them, or is there anything general that's that's good to be thinking about uh, as you try to take on this communication challenge? Yeah, I, I do think I, I do think effectively the communication challenge you're solving for again is is to get everyone moving in the same direction. Um, like I would take that even if I couldn't necessarily get everyone to fully understand why. Fully understanding why is important to me. I think engineers should always know why they're building the products they're building. Um, but, but can you at least get everyone marching in the same direction? Uh, I think you can, and I think you can use memes and, and dumb symbols to do that, right? Like you often hear about mission statements. Um, a lot of them are really long. Uh, I, I, think, I think having a shorter one that everyone can easily remember makes a lot of sense here, even if it's a little silly. Um, but if you make a mission statement that's short and meaningful, uh, theoretically, all of the like divisions down, right, from the top corporate route can, can make mission statements that are maybe more specific to what they do and then align against that grander one, right? Uh, you can start boiling that down to your teams from there, right? And then they start getting more and more specific, right? But they're guaranteed to be a piece of the puzzle, more importantly. Uh, what I see at some places is, um, uh, there's no there's no statement about what it is you're supposed to be you know striving for, or there is a mission statement, but it's so broad as to be useless. There's nothing there's nothing as like a really guiding focus. Uh, so it might only be a corporate one and not like one at your team level. Let's, okay, so let's say hypothetically you do get a mission statement, you get everybody unified, um, all levels of the organization kind of have the the same idea about what projects are important then something like COVID hits or you have a competitor go down or some new market area opens up and there are some more shiny things available that are potentially shinier than the thing everybody is unified on. So now you have other people in the business saying, well, we were working on this, but we think the returns for this thing could be superior to what we're currently working on. Um, or you could just have a scenario where your original thesis about the thing everyone had unified on is not as profitable um, or as high ROI as you assumed it to be. Um, so I guess my next question for you is once you've unified, how do you go about continuing to evaluate the project and determine whether it's still worth working on? Yeah, uh, another thing I'm huge on in general is positive feedback loops. Uh, you can, once again, apply this at any level. All of these things could be micro or macroscopic. Uh, at a business level, um, the business should be reevaluating itself. Like, are the goals even still relevant? Is this mission statement still relevant? Are these products that we're trying to build still worth building, right? The world changes uh, and you can't make a, a plan or a battle plan that is gonna last years, right? Like you're gonna need to adapt at some point. If it does last years, amazing. 
right? But that has almost less to do with you and more to do with the circumstances of the world around you. Um, so uh, th those self-evaluations, like let's take the examples you gave, right? If someone says, see something new and shiny, well, can they make a case for it, right? Is their case a more compelling argument than the current plan? No, don't do it. Um, let's say COVID comes in and you're uh, a software company that's primarily supporting point of sale systems for restaurants, right? You got a problem now, right? What do you do? Do you, do you try to pivot and do something else? Do you do you stick it out and and you know lose employees in the meantime? Um, I think it depends. Like you got to make a decision about how long COVID's going for, right? If you think you can stick it out, it's probably going to be better ROI for you, longer term, of course, to, to try to stick it out than to try to pivot the company into something you don't even know anything about, right? Um, like those are the kinds of judgment calls that just need to be made. Uh, a lot of times, it, it does feel very much like. Uh, there isn't this self-analysis of, of questions of are we still doing the right thing in like a measured way? And, and I think it's really important too that this isn't just done at the highest levels of a business. Uh, this is done for everyone all the way down. Like your team should be regularly having a retro where you're, you're saying, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And all the things that you're doing right need to become habits. And all the things you're doing wrong, um, figure out how to make them right. Figure out how to make them habits. At some point, you'll, you'll start becoming a baller team. And basically, no effort, right? Like the things that really annoy you about your job, figure out ways to make them not annoy you anymore. We're engineers. We can build things. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think on the team level, Agile, and we could talk all day about Agile, but I will say one thing I like about Agile is the retro the scrum, the kind of amount of scheduled meetings for some period of reevaluation, and it feels relatively easy to change course. I compare that to kind of some corporate practices I've seen, whether they're quarterly OKRs, so objective and key results, or uh, action items driven by shareholder meetings. Um, I mean, a lot of corporate America is driven by quarters. So it's, it's interesting, like you know, the last couple of companies I've been at, this idea of quarterly goals, so goals that are going to be evaluated every 90 days um, is always a thing. But then you think about the nature of business and competition, like, you know, the market doesn't give a fuck about a 90 day period. Um, so quarterly goals, which are set at the beginning of the quarter, um, I've always felt like don't necessarily have enough wiggle room to change uh, due to some exogenous event that could cause priorities to change. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of how to fix this quarterly goal process or other companies have five year plans, year plans? I mean, durations change. Uh, but how do you like change the duration of goal setting with kind of the fluctuations of the market? I think you're right, actually, frankly. Uh, I literally just wrote up, um, uh, because you know we're, we're, in, we're in the swing of things here in Q3 uh, at my company, and uh, like we made a three-month plan, but that first month is the only one that I said has any chance at all of actually being you know, what we end up doing. We'll plan, we'll plan it out just to have some idea of where we're going. There's no point in all of planning for October or November, December. Who knows what we're going to do then? Um, the, the event fluctuation frequency in modern software dev and, and startups, I think, is so high that planning that far out is more of a like speculative exercise or, or like a philosophical itch niche um, 
then it really is like what you're going to end up doing for the most part. Uh, this is probably not true in some industries. I would add like hardware strikes me as one that probably does have rollouts that are that long, only constrained mostly by uh, manufacturing and supply. Um, but but for other things, like by the time you get there, you're going to change. I actually think cor corporate um, corporate level like loops should be monthly, probably. Uh, there is a lot of data that goes into them typically. Um, so like getting all those reports together, I know can take um, a pretty good amount of time. But that actually might just be a sign that we need better tools, right? To make those kinds of checks easier to do. Um, to constantly make sure that the ship is still going in the right direction. We didn't just waste two months doing something that honestly we would have been better pivoting on, right? Yeah, I definitely sympathize with why these things need to happen. Like it makes sense that products should be responsible for a roadmap that could extend a year into the future. And obviously you can change that thing. Um, the process of change is a little more difficult because I think that's where some conflict happens. So even for companies, I've always wondered for companies that are really responsive and can kind of change on a dime, um, how does that happen, right? Because obviously there's an engineering perspective, there's product perspective, there's a sales perspective. Um, so let's say like it's obvious that course needs to change, but there are kind of different perspectives. How do you go about having a tiebreaker or, or like how, what's the process for democracy for decision making? I refer to this sometimes as Thunderdome or Battle Royale. Uh, but basically, uh, at the end of the day, um, all, all competing parties need to be able to say how important a given thing is, right? Like, is shiny thing A their top priority or is shiny thing A, you know, their fifth priority? Like, given, given you know, their options, vote, right? Um, a literal technique for doing this, by the way, is to make a spreadsheet, go and talk to every team, make them rank order all of the things, right? Uh, based on what they think is important, assuming that they're using the same ROI scales that we're talking about. If they're not, you know, you're going to need to get them to do that. Uh, you'll find out after that process what everyone thinks the most important things are, right? Like, at least democratically speaking. Uh, another way I, I have seen this done to great effect, if there's a smaller amount of teams, is if you have a, a budget for a team, um, and this budget's in time, let's say, uh, you can take the, the bidding war approach, um, where basically uh, you, you basically give every, every other team that needs stuff done but for you. This is mostly a problem when the, the teams have competing concerns that you're supporting. So, so like you're supporting sales who has completely different concerns than let's say an ad operations team, right? Um, like they, they don't want any of the same things. So if you did voting, you'd have, there'd be no overlap whatsoever. Uh, you give them a budget and, and ask them to uh, give you back a list of items after you've told them how much each will cost. Um, so they're forced to make good decisions about what they really want because now these things have price tags on them and they know that they can only get so many because otherwise that list is infinitely long. Yeah, I really like that process and I wish this was like a staple of, of the modern company. Um, I think this is a good segue to talk about culture because I think a lot of companies have cultures that make that process of kind of defining and raking priorities and then going in a set direction more difficult to define. So I think a culture I've seen that's fairly prevalent is there's a couple key decision makers that uh, essentially have the ability to cut in line and define what a priority is going to be irrespective of what previous priorities were. 
Uh, what comes to mind as an example is I have, I have a buddy who works at a relatively successful private equity funds and the founder is known for just kind of picking up the Wall Street Journal and saying, hey, you know, I heard so-and-so uh, is short commercial real estate. You know, we need to clean the portfolio out for these commercial real estate investments. And I want something on my desk, you know, end of the day. Uh, I, I think in tech also that that's pretty prevalent. You'll see like Facebook or Snap or any of the big tech companies make an announcement or like there will be some security blow up that will happen. And then it will be like, um, you know, what's going on with like our with CloudFront because there was just an attack on, on CloudFront the other day. Um, so I'd be interested to know like, if your company has a culture where one person can define the priorities and cut ahead of everybody else because they're C-level suite or head of engineering or who knows what, um, how can you move away from that culture and more towards something where priorities are ranked and there's a more set process for going forward? Sure. Uh, so that's always going to be a little difficult, right? Because by definition, they're managing up. Um, and, and, you know, that happens a lot, in fact. Uh, I refer to that, by the way, as pooping and scooting. So someone will come in and, you know, leave you a nice surprise and then they're gone. And sometimes they don't even care about the thing afterwards, right? I, I actually find it to be remarkably common. Um, but, but aside, uh, what you really want to do is you want to make sure that uh, the individual has felt heard, right? Like if they're coming in and doing this, like you, you probably honestly can't, strictly speaking, prevent them from doing it realistically at all. But what you can do is put it into a priority queue and say, hey, let's look and see where we think this fits, right? Now, to, to do that, you have to have the queue first. So if you don't have your priority queue, get a priority queue. You, you seriously need one to be doing any sort of like actual measured business anyway. Like if everything's the most important thing, then nothing is the most important thing. Um, so if you have that and you sit them down and you say, hey, I know this thing is really important right now. Like we really need to get Bitcoin injected into our product somehow, even though what we do has nothing to do with finance or Bitcoin. But, but we get it. You heard about it. Let's go through our priority queue and see where this fits in, right? And and a lot of times I think at that point, they'll... Uh, they'll realize that it's pretty fucking far back. Uh, the other strategy is just straight up tell them and you put, you'll put it in the backlog for them. Um, I clean up my backlog once a quarter and delete all those items. Yeah, and I know for a fact, like you've kind of been through this process at several companies. I'd interested to hear like from your experience, like A, how long does this usually take? And it could take forever, but you know, maybe it's always a refined, uh, continually ongoing process. And then B, have there, has there been anything particularly challenging or, or things you've realized as you try to move from a culture of key decision makers saying, let's do this, to something that's priority ranked and there's a priority queue? Uh, I've seen it go a couple of ways, actually. Um, so in one particular company, it was much smaller. Uh, and, and the CEO, uh, the CEO is very much used to basically being um, the chief both engineer in CTO. Mind you, extremely smart dude, very technical, knew exactly what he was doing. Um, so we, that company was probably never going to get away from that happening from time to time, except he was mostly uh, laissez-faire the rest of the time, right? But, but when things go a little sideways or something, you definitely go in. We're talking about a 40-person shop, right? So very, very different. There's like not as much of a need to avoid that kind of thing, especially when it's infrequent. Um, 
at, at other companies, I've seen it actually end up over time in the other way, where there is very much a culture of pooping and scooting, and there is always some sort of hot item uh, that was always on the docket. Uh, and we did actually make the, uh, the queuing system work, right? Where we'd be like, okay, okay, we know this is really important. Like, let's take a breather here and unfuck this quickly. Where does this live? Oh, it lives next quarter. Cool, right? And a lot of times by the time next quarter rolled around, it like wasn't even that big of a deal anymore. It didn't even make the quarterly cut. Um, in some cases, you know, it might just not be possible. The political situation might be untenable. I'm sure if you were working or were working under Steve Jobs back in Apple in the day, like, do you think that would work there? Probably not, frankly. Um, it all kind of depends, right? No, yeah, or, or Elon into. Musk, it feels like, as well as his companies do. That's more of a poop and scoot culture than perhaps some other companies. Yeah, and, and like sometimes, you know, I, I want to remark too, like sometimes these things are actually good calls. Um, most of the time they're good calls if it's like legal, uh, like so, something happened and it requires an immediate legal response. Like you should almost invariably handle those, right? Um, but if it's like, oh, let's build this, like, I don't know, diamond-studded bracelet robot, then, like, no, let's not do that. Yeah, I think, in general, like, uh, most companies are capable of making this change. Um, e- even if, like, Poop and Scoot may be the default, it's it's very much possible to get to uh, get away from that towards priority queue. Um, this kind of goes into one of my questions about culture. So... If you do get there, you need a, a culture of change, right? Where people who are used to one way of living can now move to this other way. And, and that can be tough. I mean, I, I think when you see companies, I mean, let's take Indigo, for example. Um, when I was, I joined the company, it was 400 people. And by the time I left, it was like 1,500. Uh, you know, two-thirds of the people I worked with kind of had never seen how things used to be. So a lot of my perspectives were born out of it used to be this way. and We changed it to get to this specific way. Um, versus like if you are joining um, that way is already the way um, you don't know anything else so and that way will be outdated at some point as well so I know that that process can be hard on people it certainly has been hard on me at at companies I've been at so do you have any strategies for dealing with that process of change making it easier for people Um, because I think fundamentally people don't like to be jerked around and people have a hard time with you know oh we you know as a tech leader as this position I need to make uh, a spreadsheet with priorities or the scan chart. I never had to do that three weeks ago. So why is my role being changed? So yeah, change is hard, I guess, is my statement to you. And how do you make it easier? Yeah, change is hard. Um, this is definitely a human nature thing. Uh, folks, most folks don't don't like change for no reason. Um, this particular one, when big changes are on, I think is mostly up to the, uh, the leaders to, to help folks uh, get coaxed through. And it's on regular folks to accept that change is coming. And they should, if they don't necessarily embrace it, they should understand it um, and at least make a, make a try for it. And maybe they, they find they have to tweak it a little bit into something that they like. Um, like, let's take the example of everyone now needs to have Gantt charts, right, for, for what they're doing. And, and I'm going to assume that the old way was no Gantt charts. It'll all be verbal. Right? Maybe there's a Jira board or something like that. All of a sudden, that's like a lot of administrative lift to put on, on a bunch of people, right? Um, but, but if the leadership is saying, hey, like, 
this, this isn't extra time. Like we know we're going to slow down at first for this. Like we know that forming, forming basically new teams to do this kind of thing and, and making these new norms is going to take more time. Um, like take the time you need to do this, right? There's no rush on it per se. Uh, I think that kind of gets some of the angst of the change off. If, if the leaders take the time to explain ways of developing these, right? So people aren't trying to figure out how to do it themselves and they give them the tools to do it, right? Now your outcome is, okay, everyone did the thing that was the change. Everyone now has a new tool in their toolbox for like doing the change in the future that will like save them time. Everyone understands what the change was now, right? And now leadership has the goddamn Gantt charts that they want. Like, boom. Yep. In the... I mean, you, you kind of hit on this, like all these things take time. And for the people who are making this new system of Gantt charts, priority queues, uh, ranking things, kind of just gathering the inputs that you can use to have the output of decision making. Um, whoever does these things probably is taking time from another activity they used to do. So for me, like my experience at Indigo and, and you know, since then as well has been like, maybe I start off initially by doing a ton of coding um, and you're kind of deep in pushing out features. Um, you know, you got a couple of PRs, a bunch of commits per day. And then when uh, it comes time to kind of become more strategic in your role, perhaps like you move, you know, 30, 40, 50% um, to things that would seem administrative, but uh, as we've talked about are highly critical uh, to the prioritization process. But like, given no out input from outside forces, I, I think it can be tough to say, well, was my time better when I was coding hundred percent of the time or should I be doing this 50, 50 thing and to go full circle, like, you know, a lot of your time distribution needs to be motivated by ROI. Um, but again, the, when the culture changes, it's not obvious how like ROI changes with it. Um, this is a very long winded way of asking about time management for, uh, people who maybe no, don't work at the highest level of companies. Um, so for engineering, like I would say, you know, tech leads or people slightly below that, um, how can you think about time management effectively when the culture is changing? Oh boy, the tech lead question. Uh, I'm going to preface this with saying that I very much recommend The Manager's Path. Uh, it's a book, I, I, don't, I don't remember the author's name offhand, unfortunately. Um, but I uh, really recommend reading that. It has one of the best sections on how to think about what it means to be a tech lead I, I've ever seen uh, written down. Uh, and follows along with my own thoughts uh, very well. A tech lead is an interesting spot because you're on the, the cusp of both being an IC who's expected to write code, and that's almost invariably what you're just doing, right? Your, your ROI producing activity was writing lines of code that produced working software that solved problems that people were willing to exchange United States dollars for. And then suddenly you have all these other duties like making Gantt charts, or planning a sprint, or one-on-ones that take up a lot of time. Not just that, depending on your company culture, you might be in meetings all day. Um, and, and like, that's not writing code. So does it have any value? I will tell you right now that I don't know a single new tech lead who's ever told me that any of that had any value. And their only value is coding and they couldn't do any of it. And therefore they felt like they had little value, like as a person. Um, that happens almost invariably. It has been my experience with the new tech lead. The reality is, is that they need to figure out a different value scheme for, for what they're doing. Um, 
And it gets a little trickier, right? Because you can't just measure how much stuff you made. Uh, you have to think about, um, you have a team now. There might be five people on that team, right? If you boost their, their performance by like 20%, right? You've just paid for yourself. If you boost it by 25%, you did way more than you could ever have done no matter how many lines of code you write. Um, and, and these are kind of silly numbers. I'm just making them up. Um, but, but really, you're looking for opportunities to smooth their lives, keep their morale high, uh, make, make sprint planning easy, right? Keep their meeting counts down, make their work-life balance good, uh, screen dumb, annoying bullshit, because guess what? what? That's your job now. You're the firewall. Um, make sure that like their goals and hopes and dreams like can happen inside the team or like whatever you need to get for them. It's it's a very different role, and I feel like companies don't really prepare people for it um, very well. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I mean, the way you describe it makes a ton of sense. That you know, if you can make someone twenty percent better, if you can even make you know a couple people a couple percentage points better. Uh, that's bigger than the contribution you could make by writing a shit ton of code. Um, I think, honestly, that, that concept is pretty elusive for a lot of tech leads, myself included, when I was uh, adjusting to it. Um, I'm interested in why, and this is kind of a, a change in the topic of conversation, but why in our society we have this process of promoting people who are good at a specific craft to managing other people uh, who are in that craft like a why do we do that uh, because clearly it's a difficult transition for some people and perhaps not the most optimal transition so i guess the part b of that question would be is that the right thing to do and i say that because some companies have started to have this individual contributor path where they've recognized this problem and said well not everybody uh, is necessarily you know well situated or like optimized to be a manager so maybe there's like a graduated um ic role um, so interested to hear your thoughts on both of those questions. I think it's I think it's an interesting question. On one hand, if you have managers who haven't come through the lines, mind you, too, this is probably another thing that's uh, a part of human nature and, and working culture, right? Over the eons, um, if you have someone who's never gone through that job, right, and they don't really know what the people they're managing do are, they don't really know what they're asking them to do, right? which strikes me as like being a huge negative um, to, to some degree, right? It would be like, uh, you know, imagine in the military if the infantry officers like ran restaurants first. So they have management experience, right? So that totally correlates to like getting a battalion together, right? Like, not really. Um, you, you can kind of picture that same thing in software. And in fact, I'm sure everyone's seen it at some point where uh, maybe an engineering manager had a technical background, but it's wildly different than what they're managing now. And they'll really struggle to understand what it is anyone is doing. And it never feels good, right? It never, it never quite gels, right? Um, so I'm gonna, I'm, gonna put, I'm gonna stop that one there and let's talk about the other side, which is ICs being promoted to managers. Um, here you have a situation where someone has proven themselves to be good at, at some aspect of the job, specifically building software. Um, and now they're picking up a role for which they are thoroughly unchallenged before, potentially unsuited, and have had no training in, almost invariably, right? So you kind of can get a Peter principle where they're straight up bad at it. 
Um, I never ever see a lot of mentorship around, um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say ever, I have definitely seen it, but it is very rare that you get a lot of mentorship around new tech leads and what it is they should be doing. I feel like a lot of them kind of learn from each other or watch and see what other people do to kind of piece it together for themselves, right? And that process can take years to, to really get right. Um, it's definitely the kind of thing that needs to be sped up. And I wish, um, I kind of wish we had something almost like classes for it more. Um, I do know, definitely know of, of orgs um, that kind of do this stuff, but I don't know of anyone who's like just doing it. Like you can't get a master's degree in being a tech lead, right? Like that's not a thing. In, in fact, most, most CS curriculum doesn't help you at all for uh, like modern modern business world. So, yeah, huge credit to you for providing that mentorship and, and trying to fill that gap. I totally agree. I, I mean, I think so much of our engineering interview process as a collective, you know, engineering society is geared towards asking technical questions, and the leadership stuff, as you said, is is equally, if not more, important um, because if you can, you know, make people X percent better, there's a compounding effect to that, and it's being more of a force multiplier than an IC. And really, IC skills are what's tested for in the interview process. I could go all day on the interview process, but uh, oh, I did want to get... Yeah. yeah. Before we talk about that, or if we talk about that, um, I wanted to ask you about um, the transition to tech lead and then building teams once you're um, in that role. So you taught me about the this four stages of... Uh, teams that uh, eventually lead to optimal team performance. So would love for you to describe those four stages and then as a leader, um, how you can walk your team through those stages. Sure, sure. I, I can add something onto the end too. Uh, I did just remember a, a group I've worked with here in Boston that I think is incredible at helping develop managers. Um, it's Eager Labs. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Uh, they also do... Um, like group discussion cohort type activities, which I found very valuable myself for talking about literally everything we're talking about here. Um, so the four stages you're talking about specifically are Tuckman's uh, stages of group development. Um, I'm gonna credit this to Norman Chan, who, who told me about this some years ago. I had never heard of it before, and I, I taught you about it. Uh, the four stages are forming, storming, norming, and performing. Um, and uh, I, I believe this is an audio-only podcast, so I can't really draw a graph, but a picture is sine wave, um, starting up somewhere high, and then it goes low, and then it starts to come back up again. And the very last part finally gets above where it started on, on the sine wave, if you can picture that. So, so let's go through the stitches real quick. Uh, forming itself is um, you've decided to spin up a new team. And you have four really competent people on that team, let's say. They all know exactly what to do on their individual jobs. Their, their individual performance is quite good. They have no idea how to work together, right? So they're all kind of going and doing their own thing. And then they realize that they have to start figuring out how to work together. Uh, their performance will actually go down in most, most situations. Um, this is the storming stage. They don't quite have the right processes Everyone hasn't quite figured out different people's styles of working and like what they mean when they say that. And oh, this one person doesn't wake up to 1 p.m. because we're all remote now anyways. Um, so so there's, there's a little bit of a mess going on. 
if you start applying the positive feedback loops, which we just keep talking about this entire talk, um, you, you'll hit the norming stages where you, you say, hey, this is bullshit. Let's stop doing that. Find a good habit, get the good habit injected into our process, keep on going. And that's when you really start to kind of get the team chilling, right? Um, and really get them going. At some point, you'll have done this enough where you're now just rock star teams. Everyone's been on one of these teams before where you always do what everyone else was gonna do on the team. If something came to rock the boat, everyone was just like, oh, whatever, we'll just do this and that, boom, done. Swift business, right? And, and it was just unbelievably awesome. And like, what you'll notice invariably about those teams is those teams were old. Those are not young teams. Those are not special projects teams. Those are teams where the team had been around for a while and really had a chance to gel. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning and um, I've never tried to measure how long Tuckman stages take to go through for a modern software engineering team. Um, I posit it's probably 69 months to like to get through it. Uh, that's usually how long I think it takes a new engineer uh, who's new to a domain uh, to like really pick up what what they're doing at a new company. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's how long it takes a team to do it as well. And anecdotally, that seems about right. Yeah, I feel like that's been my experience as well. Um, I, in these stages too, I think once you, if you get in the experience of being in the final stage where you're with a team and you're really enjoying the experience and you feel like everything is great. Uh, I guess it's a philosophical question. I'd be interested. Like, do you think it's better to try to preserve that situation or is it at that point, is it uh, best to kind of try to apply that team process to new teams? Cause I don't think many people stay on the, the same team for a couple of years in a row. In fact, just because the nature of change at companies, teams get broken up. And if you have a team that's performing, it's like, let's get some of that magic across all the other teams. So, it's almost like you could be a victim of your own success in terms of a, a team doing well. Oh, absolutely, right? It, it's a trade-off for sure. Like if you have one rock star team and your other teams are struggling and they're, they're stuck in the storming stage and are having trouble getting to norming and you, you're having difficulty injecting those techniques, those positive feedback loops we've been talking about, they'll never get to performing, right? They're stuck. The, the, like that's horrible and it's also a terrible morale for everyone on the teams you don't want to be in storming right like it just doesn't feel good if you're on a team that that's having these problems uh all the way up to like physical altercations right if it's really bad um so you could split the team and you're making a sacrifice if you do that right if, if you're splitting it because all of those folks are now going to go and inject those things to get the other teams up to performing uh, that's awesome, right? That might work, but you sacrificed your team to do that. It might also be that like they can't teach those skills, right? And you sacrificed the team and just made everyone miserable. So that's, that's something to consider. Uh, one, one interesting tidbit there actually, um, uh, Laura Parrott uh, is someone I've worked with um, about this type of stuff. And she was on the Google team that did analysis of the top performing teams at Google. Uh, there's, some, uh, there's some survey stuff out there. Um, I think some folks have probably read in the literature. I wanna say this was like three years ago now, maybe a little longer. Uh, turns out uh, if you take a team of like all rock stars, uh, 
with, with you know a trademark after the rock star or in quotes however you like it you put them together they're not going to be your best performing team um it's actually the teams that are the most vulnerable with each other uh who have gelled the most and have the most camaraderie that would be your best performing and, and to get to that level it takes time right and it takes openness to, to, to really kind of get there um and really it's like almost a matter of trust uh, is a part of this is going through this, which is why I think retros are so important because that's when a lot of that comes up. Um, so, so sidebar, uh, you, you mentioned teams constantly splitting up and changing and all of that, right? And that, that's just what happens at a company and it's change. What do you think that means company-wide? It's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I think company-wide when you see this type of splitting behavior and there's also like an intake behavior too because if your company's hiring teams are changing just by nature of taking on more people um i think it, it just it means the team is changing right like every subtraction or addition it's effectively a new team and then you know back to our discussion about culture it means the culture is constantly in, in flux as well so i don't yeah. know if that's where you were headed with that question but i guess my, my answer would be I, I think it just means constant cultural and team change yeah, you, you have basically put yourself into permanent storming as a team and, and can't actually get all of the performance like out of folks that you would even want. And they're all kind of unhappy about it. Like that's the result of hyper growth. That's going to be the result of changing teams up all the time. Uh, my general rule, by the way, is if you add one person to a performing team, they automatically drop back to normally is typically what I see because the other team members now need to spend time uh, getting the new team member up to, you know, up to their practices. It doesn't take very long. That's not going to be six to nine months, but it definitely happens. Little, little changes have big impacts there. Yeah. Uh, this is a good segue to the loaded subject of scaling and hyper growth. Because uh, I've seen that problem firsthand. You, you have a lot of new people coming in. And then, as you said, the team generally regresses back one gear to storming. Uh, but obviously, you know, team, companies have scaled out successfully. You know, there have been plenty of companies who have seen headcount double, triple in a single year um, and have come out of it on top. Um, what do you think the ingredients for success are in a, a hyperscaling situation where headcount's increasing quickly? Uh, honestly, a good degree of luck. Um, a certain amount of it didn't really matter what they did as long as they did something and it would have been fine. And they probably still could have done that thing with way fewer people. Like I, I personally feel that um, the hyperscaling mantra is more of building excitement. It is effectively more marketing than it is actual business reality. Um, a lot of times when you start getting a large number of new people who do not have a shared understanding of what the business is doing, a good chunk of them are only going to be spending their time building alignment um, and not actually contributing to uh, your business fundamentals whatsoever um, because everything is so chaotic. Uh, you'll have misalignment about what you should be building. So you're going to be investing in products that uh, don't provide ROI and provide negative value instead. Right. Um, and the, 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 you can still hit the goal line like this, right? Because some of those strands might be so valuable that despite everything else going on, you still win, right? You could have just won bigger if you hadn't had gone through 
um, the ramifications of hiring a thousand people, right? Um, I, I think I think the only the only I'm not going to say it's insane, but the stable strategy would be to grow slower. Um, and, and I haven't seen too many cases where uh, that wouldn't have been feasible to do to to get market share, uh, even at very large companies. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, and most of them are sales related, um, where you actually do need physical humans making lots of calls uh, and stuff like that. But but from like an engineering product standpoint, like a few people can do a lot. Uh, and it always seems silly to me to go from zero to 100 in like six months. Agree. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate that our like startup financing model kind of naturally leads to that, right? It's like a company won't raise funding for a year and then we'll get more equity or debt capital than they ever have in the history of the company. And then the natural uh, forcing function is to just go out and hire a ton of people. Yeah, of uh, course, into it. Yeah, yeah. Two questions on that. Like, do you have any formulas or tools you use to determine like what is the appropriate amount of people to hire for a specific situation? And then the second question, which is a whole discussion in itself, which we can we can get to, is like, what are once you know you need to hire people, um, like how do you kind of determine what you're hiring for and, and who to hire? But we can delay that second question because I know that is definitely a, a big one. So this first one, I'm just going to go out and state that normally what happens, I think, if you're in a hyperscaling thing, is you hire the people and then figure out what they're going to do. I'm going to categorically state that. Like, I think that happens way more often than anyone is willing to admit. Um, what you really want to do, though, is you want to figure out what your roadmap is going to be. Um, this is a time where you do actually need to figure it out a little bit longer than next month. You're guessing, right? You don't actually know. Um, you can sit down and figure out, okay, I know about how much work all of these things are going to be, or at least I hope so. Or otherwise, why are you scaling at all? You need to do some more planning here. Um, and figure out how much work that is. When do we want to get it done by? Okay. Uh, we need time to hire people and then parallelize them all. And they're going to take time to spin up. And that's about when we'd be done with all of this. How many people do we have right now? Do the math. Like that's basically it, right? And, and of course you're gonna run into mythical man month and, and all of that jazz in those equations. But at that point, you've basically given yourself a, a, a target, right? Part of the challenge though is um, hiring's hard. Hiring takes a long time. Our market is brutally competitive, right? Um, every candidate always feels a little bit like a fight, even if it's someone you know personally and they're in your network. Um, so like, it's probably safer for a lot of folks to just go, all right, well, let's just get everyone we can for six months, right? And then we know we need X number, we'll get X number plus 20, and I'm sure we'll find something for the other 20 people to do, right? Right? Um, hopefully. Hmm. So, so you, you can definitely get into to a, a messy situation that way. Yeah, let's open up the big can of worms that is hiring. Because I, I think in engineering, there's no more hot topic that's debated uh, every which way than engineering hiring. So I guess the simple question is like, what is the silver bullet for hiring the best people? I mean, that's what every company wants to know, but I don't think anyone's really cracked it. Y'all fucked. 
<laughs> so here, here's the problem, right? The silver, actually, the silver bullet is only hire people for, uh, for which you have personally worked with before. Like, you're guaranteed you know exactly what you're getting in those circumstances. I will point that out. But you can't actually fill a company that way, right? Um, you're going to need to hire strangers at some point um, who, who effectively nobody knows. And uh, it, it's, really, it's really like choose, choose which pile of garbage you'd like to use and uh, in, in what you're going to what you're gonna optimize for. Uh, I think the modern software interview optimizes to make sure that you don't get uh, someone who's really bad. Um, that's what you're optimizing for. You're not optimizing to find good candidates. You're optimizing to, to weed out bad candidates, right? It, it also doesn't uh, remove sociopaths or good actors who are bad at their job either. So like they'll, they'll make it through, um, which is unfortunate. And, and on top of that, like, you don't really find out much about them. Um, there's like all sorts of legal issues that people are constantly running up against. Uh, we can talk about culture as a secondary part of this in, in hiring. Um, another approach I've seen, and I really wish this was more doable, but frankly it's not because oftentimes you're hiring someone who's currently working, is bring them in and pay them for a couple of weeks as a contractor, contract to hire, right? Um, I think that gets a bad rap. Um, I'm almost wondering if in this particular market, you know, we might see an upswing in that uh, because there were a lot of layoffs in tech, not nearly as much as in other industries, but it did happen. Um, and like, if you work with someone for two weeks, you're going to have a pretty damn good idea of how good they are, right? And if they're suited for the job or not. Um, but that's still not the same. Like, you don't really know, right? So, so pick your poison. Yeah, I think my opinion on the subject has changed to from uh, in my original perspective, which was like, you know, you need to reach like perfection. You need to get to a level where you're getting 100% of hires correct. And now I kind of think, well, you're, you're going to get, there's going to be some margin of error because to really get to know people, you probably need to know them for a year. And, and there's so much more that needs to happen in the interview process to ever have some level of high accuracy with this is what I think this person is capable of. This is uh, what actually happens. So I, I actually think like a thing that's not talked about is for the 10, 20, whatever percent of, of uh, candidates who are amiss, like once you have that person, how do you make a bad situation good? Because it's not an option to just go ahead and say like that we're done with that person. They're fired. I mean, you ultimately have to make things work out. And I definitely have seen times where uh, even if the, the candidate um, had one set of expectations and it turns out, uh, they're not as proficient or skilled in the things you thought you hired them for. They still can make their niche at the company and still have great contributions. So I, I guess like this is not as related to the question of hiring, but let's say you hire someone and the first couple of weeks or months are rocky. Like, have you seen those situations turn around? And if you have, what's been key to those turning around? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, so one, I do want to say there are, uh, there are, are exceptions where you do fire that person. Absolutely. Uh, the sociopaths, uh, people who are actively uh, pollution, right, or, or actively bad for the org, you should identify them quickly if you can. Don't, don't let them linger. Um, two, uh, sometimes people come in, and th this is much more common with junior candidates or, or mid-level mid who are changing like what they're doing, and they like just kind of don't get it, right? 
or maybe there's something about our process that they haven't explained. And too often, too often in software, we don't make an effort to teach people about these little like faux pas kinds of things, right? It's all kind of by osmosis. And there's very much an engineering, like social culture kind of thing that we're all ingrained in because we do this all day. Um, but, you know, maybe someone doesn't know that. Maybe they, they, this is their first job, right? And they have wildly different expectations of, of how things go. Uh, I have had great success over the years with literally spending a lot of time with those people and um, making sure to be a good mentor, which takes a lot of effort, right? You can't just get it for free. Uh, we're talking, you know, a few hours a week at least, right? Um, I like to do one-on-ones to, to really spend some time doing it, but I also spend a lot of time looking at their work, doing pair programming where necessary, teaching them new tricks. And you can almost think of it as like, um, it, mind you, these are folks with CS degrees and stuff like that. Like this isn't like their first time programming or anything like that, but, but they're not up to date on maybe the intricacies of Ruby on Rails, or they've never used Scala before and they're having a really hard time with this. So Phil, you know, sitting down with a whiteboard and teaching a class is a perfectly valid way of, of getting someone leveled up, right? And make sure to keep telling them like they're getting leveled up, but don't, don't candy coat it either. Like, I, I'm pretty sure at some words I've said exactly, you're fucking this up, but like, we're here to help you. Um, but the, uh, like, you don't, you don't want them to think that they're doing, I've seen this a lot. Don't tell someone they're doing a good job when they're not right? If they're really doing a bad job, like you, you need to tell them that there are some areas for improvement here. Uh, but like, we literally super want to help in you because we believe in you and like, here's what we're going to do. And don't put it all on them. Either, right. You hired them. It's your responsibility to, uh, to, to level them up as, as well as you can. Right. And if it doesn't work out after that, or if they if they really don't want to do it, right, and they start veering into bad candidate territory, um, you may need to sever the connection there. Um, I've actually never seen that happen, though. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I mean, I think that you're you're spot on with just being candid, and uh, you know, I think teaching and. Uh, I mean, I, I would say also on the student side for me, like there's a ton of technologies I come into in every new job and I've been like, I've never fucking heard of this. I'll try to read the docs, but ultimately like I'm, I'm only going to be kind of as good as you can be with someone who's looked at the docs and tried to code it, in, it a little bit. Like you'll never, it, it's just impossible for, I don't care what your computer science knowledge is or what level you are, like experience counts for a lot. And I, I think the onus of, of being, whether you're an individual contributor or a tech lead is sharing that knowledge and leveling people up. Um, and that could, what's weird about the kind of engineering culture a lot of places is like it's almost faux pas to ask questions or to be like, I don't know what this is. Um, it's almost like, have you checked Google, check the docs so much? And there's a fine line, obviously. I think there can be too many questions asked. But generally, I've seen it veers more in the direction of people being afraid to look um, – people being afraid to look stupid, really, or not knowledgeable on a specific topic. But I mean, generally, a, 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 a good question levels everyone up because the answer is probably an answer not a lot of people have heard. Um, and I feel like if you don't do those things, you get into a situation where, like, one guy knows how to debug leaked database connections. One guy is kind of like the CPU utilization purpose and, and tracking that down. And then when those people leave or are on PTO, it's like everybody's fucked. So 
the information you're, sharing thing I just think doesn't happen enough nowadays. You're absolutely right. Uh, the, the most common uh, thing I see in junior engineers, and it's the first thing I try to beat out if I catch them doing it, is imposter syndrome. And when you have imposter syndrome, you're afraid to ask questions. Um, and and I, I almost wonder if the general niche of software engineers not liking to ask questions and, and trying to pretend that they're expert experts, right? Because no one's an expert, really. Um, is is you know everyone has a little bit of imposter syndrome in them. So in which case, I have a club for you. I'll join that. <laughs> I feel like no nobody's immune from the imposter syndrome. I mean, in, in everything. So. Um, I wanted to, we were never going to make it through this podcast without saying, asking how COVID has changed everything. Um, uh, so I wanted to end with a small COVID discussion. So obviously these last couple of months have been insane. Um, I mean, I think for engineering, we're perhaps a little insulated from it because work from home is a, a part of a lot of engineering organizations already, but I know for product and salespeople and friends I have who work in finance and other industries, um, it's been pretty tough. So yeah, yeah. Give me your thoughts on COVID and, and how it's changed Indigo, and, and just how you've seen things change in general. Yeah. Uh, so I'm in a similar situation where I was already working from home multiple days a week. So transitioning from multiple to all, um, not a very big change at all for me. Uh, but 2020, what a wild ride! And like 2020 ain't over. So. Things are going to continue to be pretty wild, I think. Um, the, the major change for COVID is a couple of things. One, uh, a lot of folks are out of a job, right? Uh, that's really hard. It's going to be hard on families. Um, it's going to be hard on individuals. Uh, it means, too, that uh, there's fewer companies, invariably, because if they weren't working, it's probably because they were employed by someone who's now out of business. Uh, so companies are going down. Um, it, it also means there's a lot more candidates in, in the pool uh, for tech companies in particular. Uh, I can tell you right now that the market is quote-unquote hot, uh, and it's some of the hottest I've ever seen it be um, for, for people trying to, to hire. Uh, just from that, uh, a major change in general is everyone suddenly realized that you can work remotely, and oh, a lot of people get just as much work done, if not more. Uh, a lot of people also discovered that they can't get any work done whatsoever because they have three kids who are not home with them all the time. Um, so, so it really kind of varies there. Uh, some, some predictions I expect to see actually is I think the new default for a lot of startups might be fully remote. Um, I think people are discovering things that I've known for a while. Uh, like um, you can hire software engineers in Korea and that's awesome, they're very good, but it's a 13 hour time difference. Nowadays, you can also hire software engineers in Buenos Aires and Chile, and there's no time difference, right? So like, you, can, you can definitely broaden your, your, your remote ability to more than just the United States very easily now. Um, and you get a really, really diverse team in. Um, same thing with Eastern Europe and, and Europe in general. They're very much, um, the, the time zone problems are honestly bigger, I think, than, than like cultural and regional challenges. Uh, which goes on to a diversity piece too. Um, obviously the George Floyd protests have made a, a big impact on the United States, one that was almost certainly overdue. Um, 
I think a lot of companies in general have been looking to see, oh, do we have a diverse workplace? Like, is our diverse place work? And, and software engineering, let's be honest, like, it's stereotypically a bunch of white bros, right? Like, that, that's the stereotypical modern software company. Um, I, I have this theory that, uh, like, the, the, the sum total of the ideas that you can produce as a company is directly based on the diversity of experiences of the people that work there, right? Like if someone's there and they can't think of a thing, then they can't think of it. Like the company can't do it. Um, so what, what you end up with is effectively uh, a form of inbred thinking because everyone's all the same. So having a more diverse workforce actually leads to a better company output because you have a more diverse thinking. Um, so if you're looking for, you know, more reasons for it, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, the, the other piece too, uh, and this goes into more remote, is like just why have offices in some cases? Like is there some other thing that's like an office that gets the same thing done without everyone showing up there? Offices are really expensive. Absolutely. I mean, the more diverse workplace I'm extremely excited about, and, and I'm, I'm happy we can see it going on and it's becoming a focal point of a lot of discussions about hiring. Um, one thing with COVID specifically, I've been thinking a ton about is like, let's say we get kind of a more diverse hiring base and companies become more diverse. I think it doesn't stop there, right? Like, you know, people have to work together who have different ideas about engineering and all the ton of other topics people disagree on. And I feel like in-person interaction is pretty critical to that happening. Um, I mean, I'm definitely old timey with this, but I still continue to believe that statistic that 80% of communication is nonverbal and the experiences you have with people, whether um, it's, you know, getting a beer with them or, or just hanging out and talking. Um, those are pretty critical to the norming and performing stages we talked about earlier. Um, you know, during COVID, these things can't really happen. Um, and I, I don't think uh, Zoom or Slack are necessarily high value replacements, especially Slack where, you know, there's a, a whole, totally different way of communicating with just walls of text and you can see the other person typing and all that other stuff. Zoom is maybe slightly closer, but um, let's say like COVID goes on for, you know, at least another year. Um, what can teams do uh, to have those kind of bonding experiences that you wouldn't necessarily uh, be able to have off, uh, not in person? Like are there replacements for the in-person bonding experiences? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, and, and I'm going to give you some short-term ones and then one business idea. Um, so the short-term ones are uh, play, play board games online, right? Do the kinds of things that you might do socially anyway. Uh, make sure you have video and all of that. There's a lot to like moving pieces around on a board and you can see everyone else's hands doing it, right? And these aren't strictly work activities, but these are kind of camaraderie building ones, right? Uh, we've taken to, uh, you know, at four o'clock on a Friday, every other Friday, we just hang out and talk about whatever goofy stuff we're up to because everyone's locked inside. Uh, we're fortunate to live in New England where we, we have taken most of the precautions. So people are actually finally starting to, um, you know, visit each other in social distance and wear masks but you can play a board game outside that way. It's doable. Um, it's not going to be like that everywhere, of course, but, but it's definitely an option if, if you're in New England. Um, the business idea is actually a little wild. Uh, 
I think you're correct in that a lot of communication is actually based on body position, hand movements, you know, slight eye things, like, especially if like you're telling a joke or something, like that's also important. Uh, I, I'm waiting for someone to make a good VR app for it where it does face mapping uh, and like directly captures someone's body experience such that uh, me and you sitting on bar stools having this chat while we drink actual beer per se, like would be like not quite there, but pretty damn close. And I think the tech is there, um, but no one's bothered to do it yet. I wonder if there's a market for that now. Oh, I would totally be a customer. Uh, yeah, there's a market right here. So I, I love that idea. Um, Nick, awesome having you on, man. I, I'm going to put Eager Laps and Manager's Path and a bunch of the other stuff you mentioned in the show notes. Uh, but it's been such a pleasure. Uh, anything you want to say before we wrap up here? No, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, maybe I'll come back one day. I love that. Do a part two. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.